Tonight on the program, we are talking about rare diseases, the top five health concerns for men, emotional resistance, and more. We've got lots to talk about tonight, but right now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You know, I was thinking, here it is February. We've, we've failed already on those, or at least I have, on those New Year's resolutions about uh, nutrition and exercise and, and getting healthy. We've had the dry January, the dry February. And you know what? What do we really know about nutrition? I myself have never followed fad diets, but there are so many of them. And I have so many questions around this. I have to be honest, I'm struggling a little bit this year in 2023 with my own diet. So I have invited none other than Ali Chernoff, a registered nutritionist and dietitian on the program tonight. And she is on the line, joins me from Vancouver. Good evening, Ali. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? Not bad. We're getting close to uh, my bedtime. Uh, (laughs) well i'm so glad that you're staying up for us i really appreciate it because this is just such this is such an important subject we're going to be talking a little bit later on in the program about the top five health concerns for men and a lot of them relate to diet and nutrition and exercise as well but we're going to focus on diet nutrition there are so many diets out there We've heard and read all about them and heard about them in the media. They're based on blood types. They're based on genetics. They're based on uh, certain types of food. They're based on all sorts of things. Are, do, are any of those fad diets, if you will, legitimate? And before we get into actually what does work, um, and, and why are they so popular with people? It's definitely confusing. With the internet, I mean, not to age myself, but when I first started, there was no such thing as the internet. So it was so much easier to debunk some things. I mean, not all diets are equal. I mean, we've heard about the Mediterranean diet, and that is something that is actually healthy because it doesn't eliminate any of the food groups. So that's always a red flag when something is eliminated because it's more about what nutrients am I missing? Not to eliminate things, but make sure that you're not missing anything. Mm-hmm. And, and to that end, we're also living in a world of processed foods. And you know what? The kids are multi-engaged today, if you will. They're involved in music lessons and soccer and all sorts of different activities. And just to throw some food on the table or just get something into their mouth or stop through the drive through on the way to wherever there it is that they're going. And how... Uh, dangerous is that, especially uh, for children and for their future health as adults? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, not all that, not all fast food is bad. However, yes, in a general statement, and it goes back to they're missing nutrients. I mean, you need proper fuel in order, especially if they're going for any type of sports or activity, you need to be properly fueled. I mean, even adults, let's be honest. And, like, on that note, I mean, we know February is heart health month. So not only for males, but for females, the number one death globally is heart disease. So all relates back to nutrition. As I always say, it's the four Fs and definitely not the swear word. Great. (laughs) And what are those four (laughs) Fs? (laughs) It is fitness. So Health Canada recommends around 20 minutes of exercise a day. 
and it doesn't have to be all at once. I mean, I'm a, I'm a stepper, so I like to get in 40,000 steps a day. It sounds a little crazy, but uh, you only need to get in 10,000. I mean, you'll, you could go on your lunch break and go for a walk and pretty easy to get your, your steps in. So that's number one. Number two is fat. People always think, oh, I'm going to go on a low-fat diet. But you actually need fat. It's all about the quality of the fat. And then number three is fiber. And you don't need to just think about, like, whole grains. It could be fiber from fruits and vegetables. It could be fiber from tree nuts, like almonds, for example. And then number four is fish. However, my clients always say to me, what if I don't eat fish? You can replace it with walnuts or crushed flaxseed. So if you're vegan, you don't have to eat fish to get your omega-3 in. Okay. And number four? That was number four, fish. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Fish. So we have um, fat. We have fish. We have fitness. And did I miss one? <laughs> Obviously I'm missing the right nutrition. And fiber. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The, okay. <laughs> the most important I've got one, it. probably. You know, I'm focusing on two things. The fact that you get 40,000 steps in. My max has ever been 25,000. I thought that was pretty darn good. Um, but also you mentioned fat and you talk about healthy fat. What are some examples of healthy fat? Sure. So olive oil, as long as it's first cold pressed, that's an excellent fat. Even avocado, because people are like, oh, really? Avocado? I mean, yes, it's a fruit, but it also has healthy fat. And there's, I mean, you can just have avocado oil if you're, you know, wanting your oil there. Um, there is flaxseed oil, any type of like nut oil. Those are all healthy fats. I mean, fat provides essential fatty acids that our body actually does not make. So you actually have to eat fat. And, and butter is not one that's on that list. Is that, am I correct in that? <laughs> Unfortunately not for heart health. Darn, darn. What about those um, processed butters? Like, I can't believe it's, it's not butter, which I can believe that it's not butter. I don't actually think it tastes like <laughs> butter at all. But what about yeah, those not, types of things? shocking. Yes. Yeah, I mean, again, that's we really want to focus on whole foods. So we try and stay away from anything that is processed. Excellent. And, and your website is nutritionatitsbest.com. I just want to mention that. And all the services that you offer, you offer um, really, uh, you know, corporate wellness packages to people who live in Vancouver. You do educational workshops, healthy planning, healthy menu planning. But something interesting, you do grocery tours. Tell me about your grocery tours and what do they focus on? For sure. I mean, we start off of how to develop a proper grocery list. Like, let's be honest, people just go to the grocery store and it's like a ramble and then you end up buying things that you don't even have in your mind or on the menu so it's like it provides like not over shopping and then we go around and we explain I explain to them what to look for on a label because that's so important because every food group has a different um, sort of key points that you're looking for of how to find something that's healthy 
So that's confusing. Food labels in itself are confusing. It's like reading legal documents, which is obviously not my thing. Yeah, it, it can be confusing. And, and is the order of the ingredients important on that label? And should we be it's reading true. labels on everything we pick up? Absolutely. Like my client the other day was so funny. She goes, I thought about you and I didn't even know half the ingredients. So I put it back on the shelf. Very interesting. That's so true. And, and I'm also wondering if, if we're picking it up and we're having to read labels, is that processed food and should we put that processed food back? And is that why we're seeing the escalating and, and really soaring obesity rates in, in children and in adults in this country of late? Um, it's not necessarily uh, processed food is one of the variables, but it's more of like less activity, uh, portion sizes. People don't understand what a portion size is. I mean, even if you think about back in the day, you know, when you and I went trick or treating, like the Halloween treats were tiny, but that's what they used to be. And now everything is like super sized and you don't share. So that's more what the obesity problem is, as opposed to just zoning in on a processed food. You may have done it your way. You may have tried to lose weight your way, and it may or may not have worked, which is why I have invited registered dietitian and nutritionist Ali Chernoff to the program. She joins me on the line. We are talking about everything from fad diets to supermarket tours. And uh, Ali, I have an email from Rich listening out there in Radio Land, who says, and I, I think perhaps, but I'll let you answer the question, uh, perhaps he's misunderstanding what you said. He says, flax is in no way a substitute for fish. I don't think you said that, but go ahead. No, but if you're vegan and you don't eat fish, the only way to get in omega-3 is crushed flax seeds. And the reason I say crushed flax seeds is because if you eat the flaxseed whole, it's only a fiber source. So this way you get the benefits of the healthy fats from the flaxseed and the fiber. And then I also mentioned walnuts. Absolutely. But if you, but um, if you ask eat you, fish, I mean, great. <laughs> you know, good for you. Exactly. Exactly. Good brain food, as they say. Um, if you chew flaxseed, is that equivalent of crushed flaxseed? No, it has to be actually crushed actually crushed. Okay. Interesting. So there you go. I've been doing it wrong. I love flaxseed. <laughs> I love to eat, <laughs> chew. I love to chew flaxseed. <laughs> Call me strange. Um, well, so okay. we're, <laughs> we're talking about, I like very plain food as well. And I like very, I don't like processed food. I just like, you know, I try to have, um, clean food, if you will. I try to have vegetables and protein and, and low carb. Um, but, you know, we we all fall off. And I have to say, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit this year. Uh, you mentioned that you go to bed early. Thanks so much for staying up with us. I That's something a lot of people eat after after dinner when they shouldn't. They sit there and they mindlessly eat. But I find if I go to bed early, I can't really do so on a Sunday night, but um, that does help curb my appetite. I was also raised not to eat anything after six o'clock. We have to give these good strategies to our children as well in terms of nutrition. How important is that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, we're doing a lot more research and finding out about gut health and how that basically stems our whole 
adulthood as a child. I mean, we never really thought about it as children, but they're saying now in the first year, it's so important for their gut health to mature properly so that when they're an adult, they have less issues. So even then, the nutrition is important. I mean, we know it was important, but we really understand it better now about gut health that relates to everything. And if somebody who's out there listening right now and they've struggled to lose weight and they want to lose weight, what services do you offer or what would you recommend to somebody to start that journey where they can be successful, where they'll have the greatest chance of success? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I mean, if they can come see me, I help them out and I individualize the meal plan and work on strategies because it's not usually the food per se that I help them out with that's the issue. It's like changing their their habits because maybe they've been a breakfast skipper for a decade and then it's like, well, how do we figure out how to bring that into their new routine in the morning? So, and, and on a note about breakfast, it doesn't have to be breakfast options. It doesn't have to be cereal. I mean, I've got some clients that eat pasta for breakfast, but I help them balance it out. I think there's, a, there's this stigma about breakfast food items. Mm-hmm. I, I'm one that has to eat eggs or eggs or fruit <laughs> for breakfast. I have to have breakfast food, and, and even if I don't get to it. But I know I understand a lot of people will eat pizza. They'll eat unhealthy foods. Uh, we talked a little bit about the gut, but how about the large abdomen? How is it? How important it is is it for people, especially men, um, who can, you know, whose abdomens can be an issue, especially around heart health? Since we're talking that, how important is is it for men to reduce their abdominal girth to a healthy size? Uh, absolutely. I mean, yes, definitely for men, obviously also for women. But yeah, I mean, if you put on uh, um, fat around your abdominal, you're not going to be digesting your, your food properly. So it's super important. I always look at like the, the waistline when clients come to see me. I don't care if you have, you know, a big gut, that's okay. It's safe. Nutritionally, it's more about the, the abdominal area. Mm-hmm. But I can help that, clients that... lose the weight. And, you know, most people don't even realize these days that they may actually have benefits that cover a dietitian services. It's a bonus. Is that right? Oh, that's amazing. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that. And all they would need to do is to look into their insurance plans to see if it's in the fine print. Exactly. Unfortunately, we are okay. fine friends. <laughs> and now, do you provide meals for people as well? And yes, I do have that option. I have a few clients that they don't want the the meal plan. They actually want me to cook the food. So I I drop off food in friendly mason jars, and then they give me the empty ones, and we keep replacing them each week. And they successfully get to a healthier weight. Uh, it's amazing work that you do. It's so important. I really appreciate you coming on. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Allie? We've got about 30 seconds. Uh, they can just go to the website, nutritionatitsbest.com. And it's a great website, lots of information. Allie, thank you so much. Really appreciate your contribution to the program tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it. What if you were diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease? My next guest, Hazel Curry, is living with a mitochondrial disease, neurogastrointestinal encephalopathy, 
and she joins me on the line to share with us what life is like. Good evening, Hazel. Hi there, Maureen. Thanks for having me tonight. Oh, thank you so happy much for joining talk me. About, yeah, happy to talk about, I call it MENGI, so that's the, the acronym because it's a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> mitochondrial I, neurogastrointestinal encephalopathy. It usually is very confusing to people. <laughs> It is. You sound like you have a lot of energy, <laughs> more energy than me. <laughs> well, honestly, I go up and down. Well, as you mentioned about the ATP and mitochondria energy, um, as you said, like all cells in the human body have mitochondria. So how I describe it to my kids, if this is helpful to people, is mitochondria, they're like the power plant of cells. So they're giving us the energy so we can talk right now or digest food and breathe, etc. So when a person has a mitochondria disease, like what I have, the power plants and our cells are just not working properly. So sometimes I get, I call it a massive power outage. So sometimes I'm with my kids and husband, we're hiking and I'm like, great, going, going, going. And all of a sudden I kind of crash. Um, and that's what you mentioned, sort of the ATP and um, the sort of running out of energy. And Mito is that energy. So, and yeah. we, I was surprised to learn on the Mito Canada website that we make about 2 billion mitochondria every second throughout our lives. Nobody is thinking about mitochondria. Is, is that a fair enough statement? We're I not think really so. thinking I, about what fuels us. Yeah. Absolutely. Until I got diagnosed. I got diagnosed in 2020 after probably many years of not misdiagnoses, but just, you know, no one's heard of the disease. I'm still the first and only in British Columbia history. And right now, I don't know of any other Canadians with it. So, and there's 200 of us Is in the whole right? world. Wow. And, and what were your symptoms? Take me back to uh, what sure. you experienced throughout your life. Yeah, I'd say the biggest moment was right after university in Vancouver. Um, I basically had my heart stop one day and I had to get a pacemaker. So I was in sort of the cardiology world for a long time. Um, I mean, my whole life I was always super skinny and I still am very slim. Um, and I always had sort of gastro or gut issues. So I'd say those are kind of the big markers. And as time goes on, I was often used to some of those symptoms. Um, but then a chance, I had a scan, a CT scan, and it was a sort of a chance find. And they're like, this is strange. <laughs> Something doesn't look right in your brain. Um, it doesn't affect my functioning at all. Um, but it kind of led us down the path of genetic testing um, over the course of a year. And I had blood work sent at California, Texas, and then uh, Finland, which is where they do a lot of genetic testing. And then the final diagnosis was at Columbia University in New York, and um, that's where they figured out I have this Menji disease. So, um, again, super rare. I haven't had a single doctor or anyone who's ever heard of it before outside of researching it when I got it. So, so I'd say the biggest issue for most Menji people is the gastro stuff or the gut stuff. Um, people are skinny. Um, and things just don't work exactly well. It varies. You know, some people are really, really sick, and some people are more mild. So, and and you know, it's a rare disease. And you know, although there, you said there's nobody else in British Columbia. Um, yeah. There. How about in Canada? Is there anyone? So right now, with? I don't know if there. There was a few people a few years ago. Um, they've passed away. Um, I haven't been able to find other people, but I have a little Facebook group and my goal is to find more people around the world. So just like two weeks ago, um, I found someone in Italy and we had a Zoom chat 
And I've talked to someone in the UK who has it as well. And um, a few weeks ago, someone in India. So I found nine people in the world so far of the estimated 200 that are diagnosed. Oh, I see. Okay. And might there be more people out there who are experiencing some of the progressive symptoms that you experienced um, that are associated with MNGIE, mitochondrial neurogastrointestinal (laughs) encephalomyopathy. Um, Yes, it certainly is a mouthful. Um, That are having, they might be struggling with getting the proper diagnosis. They might have that gastrointestinal motility. Absolutely. Well, with rare diseases, I think people are misdiagnosed or not diagnosed for years because it looks like something else usually. For for Menji, a lot of people, some people it looks like an eating disorder because they're so slim. Some people it looks like Crohn's or colitis, sort of classic gut issues. Some people, um, they just don't know. And until this sort of the, the advancing of genetic technology, I'm hopeful as time goes on that there's going to be more and more people diagnosed. Not, not that I want them to be diagnosed, but if they uh-huh. have it, to actually know what they're dealing with and to get the right supports or treatments um, over time. So I'm hopeful. I'm passionate about trying to help people, um, you know, wanting to help others with mito disease because it really matters. Oh, it certainly does. And that, um, I just want to go dive a little deeper into some of those sure. symptoms that may lead to their their thinness. Um, they some of the symptoms, although Minji varies from case to case, but some people might experience vomiting, nausea, yeah. diarrhea, abdominal yeah. pain, and none of those are consistent with keeping weight on on somebody. And in fact, people can be diagnosed with celiac disease, as you said, anorexia, um, yeah. bulimia, that kind of thing. But so yeah. do they seek those treatments and then they don't work and they continue to struggle? And then I would imagine they would get anxiety and depression and... Sure. I mean, I could see, yeah, I, sure, I could see that being a a case for a lot of people. Just, it doesn't seem, it just doesn't add up exactly. Uh Um, I mean, some of the other stuff with Manji, some people get sort of tingling or um, something, drooping eyelids as well. Some Uh people get hearing loss. So any, any part of your body that, where a lot of mito gather, like generally more like the gut. Um, brain, um, eyes, eye, eyelids as well, that those are areas that seem to be attacked more with Menji disease. Mm-hmm. And so that drooping of the eyelids or ptosis, P-T-O-S-I-S. Exactly, yeah. Ptosis with a P, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, that, that people might have, that might be a symptom in addition to the fatigue, the weakness, as you mentioned, the pins and needles sensation in the yep. hands and feet. Um this is caused, as I understand it, you probably know better, um, yeah. it's, it's caused by changes or mutations in, in particular genes. Tell me a little bit about that. So it, it is, so the genetic condition, so, it, so your genetic code, there's mutations in it, so in your DNA, and it's the instruction of, it's called the TYMP, um, which is the gene. So it's just not giving you the right instructions. So um, it's a genetically inherited disease. So um, both my parents were carriers. So and if you can imagine, there's only 200 people world with it. And have both my parents be carriers. And then it's autosomal recessive. So then at that point, I would have only had a 25% chance of having the full disease. And I did get it. So With two parents that were carriers of the yeah. gene. Yeah. So which is, I mean, the, the rareness is exceptional. So. 
It, it certainly is. It certainly is. Um, what, what was your sense? It's a rare disease and a lot of people out there are living with rare diseases and it, it can, it can be very frustrating because as you say, you don't really have a community of people, um, that, share obesity or diabetes or even, you know, metastatic cancers. Absolutely. Um, there's so yeah. few people that have this. So what's it like to live with a rare disease? Well, there's sort of two parts. One is that you're living with having the illness yourself. So just dealing with sort of the ups and downs of all the symptoms or treatments. But it's living in a world where few people understand what you're up against. And uh, even having something like mengi, a mouthful, like it's, how do you even begin to explain to someone what it's about? It's complicated. So it can be lonely. Um, I've read, I've read the rare disease, um, actually the International Rare Disease Days on February 28th. Um, and of course, every four years, it's the 29th. So that was a leap year. So it's part of that sense of rare diseases. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, they say it's, Few, but many, if that makes sense. So there's few of you with what you have, but there's many people with rare diseases. We are talking about mitochondrial disease. Mitochondrial disease can affect anyone at any age, and there is no cure. It's extremely rare. The mitochondria are like tiny factories in our cells, responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy we need to survive. I have to say, never before have I spoken to a more energetic advocate who's so passionate about something uh, in the history of the radio show. Thank you so much, Hazel, for joining oh, me online. Um, so obviously there's no cure, but there may be treatments to moderate some of the symptoms. So how is mitochondrial disease diagnosed? Um, I mean, sorry, theory? how is mitochondrial disease? How is it yeah. treated? Well, yeah. So like you said, how, there's no yeah. cure for it. And there's, there's a, a few effective treatments or very few real, really. Um, so in my particular case, um, I take something called a mito cocktail. It sounds more exciting than it is, but it's basically a mix of supplements. Uh, a lot of them are just sort of over the counter type things like a mix. It's sort of a scientifically proven mix of sort of vitamin D um, B12, a whole bunch of things. So basically to try to strengthen your cell health. Um, and then um, I know other people with Manji take sup nutritional supplements. I only take supplements if I've had a really rough gut time, um, like a boost or ensure that kind of stuff, just to get my stuff up. But part of it, I also need to have 30% more food than everybody else just to keep my basic organs and my body functioning properly. Um, and then another thing I use just to keep healthy is fitness. Um, and as you probably know, when you do fitness, it increases your production of mitochondria. And outside of obviously fitness, you can strengthen muscles, your blood pressure, weight management, etc. But it does increase your production of mitochondria, which um, is great. I think it's good for everybody, um, but it's particularly good for those with mito disease. So I've always been active. I've been really active for about 20 years in particular, and I've had activities the triathlons, I'm not that good. Uh, I like hiking <laughs> family. Um, actually, during the pandemic, we did something called pandemic hikes. We went hiking almost every day. So um, I kind of, like I said, bottom out sometimes with my energy. But um, that's sort of another treatment I use. 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if um, that's why exercise, you know, you don't feel like doing it, but you go out and you do it and then you feel more energetic and you feel better, whether you yeah. have mitochondrial disease or not. Um, yeah, I but think just so. another encouragement for people to get out there, pound the pavement, do some exercise, lift the weights, whatever. Absolutely. I, I go to the gym three times a week and lift weights as well. But I can't speak mm-hmm. for all men, GP builders. I met a guy a few weeks ago um, online on Zoom who is Menji, and he's had to have a liver transplant. And I know of a woman, she had to have a stem cell transplant. So, there, and there's certainly people I know of who've passed away from it at young, a young age, some for the average, and obviously I'm not the average right now, but the average uh, life expectancy is age 37. So the people who have this, who are really unwell, are very unwell. Oh, wow. Yeah. As I, I mentioned earlier, there is no cure, uh, and which is why it's just so important to have yourself uh, speak about it. Also, the great work that Mito Canada is doing. If you want more information about mitochondrial disease, you can go to mitocanada.org. Lots of information there, lots of ways to get involved, to support. Um, You mentioned that you get, it's lonely sometimes. And and I also imagine that it's challenging. Relationships might be challenging as well, because, you know, earlier on in the program, you mentioned you go for a hike, and then all of a sudden you peter out. And, you know, (laughs) I, I can't imagine being halfway up Grouse Mountain and just <laughs> deciding which way do I go. <laughs> um, well, which I think that my kids, my kids and my husband, they kind of they're like, oh yeah, mom's done for a little bit. So I usually I used to think before I was diagnosed that I just, you know, my food was off or I just needed a quick energy boost of like a granola bar or a little bit of juice or something. But in the end, now I know it's actually my mitochondria kind of petering out, like I said before, that power outage in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just weed it out. I'm not, it's not too devastating, but I, I literally go to zero. Like I'm hiking, I'm going up hills, I've got great cardio, and all of a sudden I'm down to zero. So I just, I'm like leading on a tree, taking a deep breath in and just kind of waiting it out. And then so I kind of, I do have a quick snack and then it regroups. But yeah, no, you know what, having a rare disease, um, part of another way I manage it is I like to have a great team. So I've got some great specialists, um, physiotherapists. I even have a neurophysiotherapist. So I'm working with her to do things to prevent things that haven't happened yet or may happen. Um, there's a dietitian at the clinic. Uh, genetic counselor, RN. So I, I like the idea of the team approach and trying to learn a little bit of something from everybody that can hopefully help me in this disease. And you just sound so optimistic and so energetic and so happy and positive, but do you worry? Do you worry about the future? Sure. I mean, if you read about it, it's called a progressive disease. And I've almost known more people who've died from it than I found in the world with it. So that can be disarming at times and worrisome um, but I do try to focus on that I am doing quite well and I, I, I have the treatments I make work for me and I take responsibility for my fitness I eat very healthy um, I make all my own food I make all my own salad dressings we eat tons of fruit and vegetables so I always think that must play a good role as well at some point so I try to take responsibility for as much of it as I can um, and uh-huh. some days were crappy. Like last night, I was up nine times in the night. I had a really oh. bad gut. 
And then this oh. morning, um, I was um, lucky enough, I had a team called the Menji, the Mighty Menji Spinners. There was a national Mito event called Mito Spin. And mm-hmm. um, I had a team here in Victoria at a spin company, and we had about a dozen family and friends. And we did spinning as a group um, and then raised money for, the, for Mito Canada. So that was fun. Um, the great thing about spinning is you can kind of cheat a little on your bike if you're not feeling as good. You sure well. can. <laughs> uh, self-confessed cheater right here in spinning. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for people who are living with worry, concern about the future, about perhaps passing it down to their children, or what are some of the strategies you use there? Like, do you use mindfulness? Yeah, I mean- do you do meditation? I, I, I really value um, my mental health and um, community. I know the importance of having good people around me. And when I took a photo of the Mito Spin this morning, uh, I just, I smile at the photo. There's all these great people willing to do spinning and to talk about Mito with me. And that, that's a supportive community. And people are interested in learning about Menji. I mean, it's rare. Um, but that makes it interesting as well. So I hope more people have a chance to learn about it. And I hope at some point there's going to be someone out there who hears this or who gets a strange diagnosis and maybe they can find there's someone else in the world with it and feel like they can start their own community as well. Absolutely. Well, Hazel, I hate to end this conversation. It's been delightful, but uh, we're up against the clock. Thank you so much for educating us all about mitochondrial disease particularly in particular Menji and for more information you can go to mitocanada.org i encourage you to get involved we're going to be talking about low sexual desire in men we often associate that with women we think that men always have a high sex drive but that's not necessarily the case and we are also going to be answering your emails as well. Um, got a very interesting one that's very timely for the segment that's coming up very shortly, but also going to be talking about emotional resistance. Are you one of those that is emotionally resistant? And what exactly does that mean? But right now, very important subject, uh, talking to you guys out there uh, and there's nobody better to do that than Dr. Tomi Mitchell, who's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. And she empowers people to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity, especially in the workplace, but also in their own lives. And Dr. Tomi Mitchell joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm fabulous. Oh, excellent. So we're going to be talking about um, the five top health concerns for men. But I honestly just happened to get an email or a text message, sorry, from uh, what sounds to be like a very frustrated gentleman um, who describes, he says, my mom and I have lost faith in, in doctors. I feel that they're causing illnesses. I've had nerve damage, spinal cord problems. Doctors help to get you sick, but aren't helping to get me any better. I've been self-medicating to deal with my own issues. I feel no doctors can help. Maureen McGrath, please point me in the right direction. What do you say to somebody as a medical doctor, as a physician, and um, with all due respect, but, you know, we want to be open and honest yeah. and transparent on this program. 
um, people are frustrated. I mean, there, there's issues with the Canadian healthcare system. Yeah. Sometimes doctors don't have the answers. But yeah. what would you say to encourage this gentleman and his mother? First, I want to say I'm really sorry for the pain you're going through, and I appreciate you expressing your frustration. And, you know, really love to hear to, like, what is going on, just because oftentimes it's that listening ear. And perhaps something happened, I don't know, that was a medical issue that could have been solved, I don't know, but where are we now? Where can we move forward? No system is perfect. This system is far from perfect. It was never created to be perfect. um, There's tremendous strains on the system it's not equitable it's not equally accessible across the country there definitely have and have not as far as access to critical um tests um and investigations it's no by no means perfect but please know that there are physicians and healthcare providers who truly do care who are passionate about healthcare. Care. I can speak for myself and Maureen here. We're on the show regularly because we care about health. We care about these topics that need to be discussed and we need to have to provide a safe place for our listeners to come and ask their questions. So without going into specific parts to really answer his question, but first I just want to say I'm really sorry you're feeling that way. And there are truly people that do care. And we, gen- we, we do try our best. Um, and, and we we do understand that that people can sometimes become very frustrated with the healthcare system yes, and, and have the sense. And I get the sense from David, who's from Manitoba, who writes yeah. in from Manitoba and is listening from Manitoba, that um, he feels that nobody cares. And, and it, that's yeah. just so heartbreaking to think that nobody cares, you know. And and that's a real feeling um, yeah, of David. I am certain. Yeah, yeah. But there are people out there who care. And I mean, it's hard, but never give up. Keep trying, David, keep getting, getting, get a referral from a friend who may have a doctor who they can uh, have a good rapport with or or somebody, but, you know, just keep trying and be very specific as well in what your pain is and what your issues are. I mean, that's the other thing. Doctors oftentimes only have 10 minutes based on this healthcare system to see a patient and they'll say, just tell me one problem. But oftentimes people have many problems. And so I, I feel your pain, David. I, it's very, very frustrating. And I certainly wish you the best of luck, but keep going, keep trying. Anyway, we're going to be talking right now about some important subjects. It's heart health month. It just reminds me that there's just so much around heart disease and how, how important it is to value your heart because so many people are taking so many medications. Heart disease is the number one killer. But what are the five top health concerns for men, Dr. Mitchell? Um, yes, Maureen, that's a really good question. So heart disease is number one, right? We said so plus related stroke. Um, third, a mental health concern, which is with um, depression and suicide and lung cancer and last but not least, prostate cancer. So those are our big um, areas of concern for men. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you mentioned the mental health, and I think that's why I wanted to bring this subject um, yeah. to the show tonight. Because, I mean, although women face mental health struggles as well, women have it seemingly go to the doctor more. They have more supports. Yeah. They have friends. They're much more accustomed to talking. And oftentimes men can internalize their issues. They can feel that 
feeling lonely or depressed, you know, is associated yeah. with weakness. Um, yeah. They may not realize that anxiety can manifest as anger and yeah. other issues that can impact their relationship. Um, so I, I was surprised to see that in a way that mental health issues were, was the third. Um, well, and there are certainly other uh, issues the, that men have to be concerned about diabetes, testosterone, fertility issues as well. Yeah. So yes, we're not yes, limited yes. to this. No, and you know, you know, I love talking about mental health, so I always have to put a plug in. The number one disability worldwide is actually depression. And by age 40, one in two Canadians would have had or have had a mental health challenge. Just to give perspective, so 50% mm-hmm. by age 40. It's very common. Wow. And, and there's such a stigma still, and we do judge people. Yes. I'm sorry. We do judge yes, people who do. are suffering with we mental illness, yes, society mental definitely health does. issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's so much shame. People want to keep it inside. They don't want to share it with anybody. They think nobody will understand or that nobody else has experienced this in the past. And it's because we don't share our mental health struggles that we yes. have experienced. Yes. And it can be situational. It can be something exactly. that occurs in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And why is it important for men to talk about mental, their mental health and to seek treatment for mental illness and mental health issues? Because number one, you matter. Your health matters. And whether or not you want to address it, it is impacting you. It's like, a, like it sets in, the impact your family, your relationships, your work, your health, like everything that you value, even from your sex life, like it impacts everything and there are um solutions treatments and therapies to manage symptoms and other things you can do to support healthy living like depression anxiety can be a chronic illness and we need to give it that respect in place just like through diabetes you know we will take their medications depression is no no different so men you matter we need you healthy and strong and there are solutions it takes courage to ask for help and like the mental right? It, it, it takes courage. Oh, absolutely. It's hard to find that courage when somebody's feeling depressed or somebody's feeling like yeah. they're, you know, pulling one foot after the other out of quicksand mm-hmm. in order to yes. get to the next place. And the stigmas associated oh. with mental illness, make, it's a big barrier. It make it harder for yes. men to access the help that they need. And we have so many myths around mental health and social norms and self-perception and these cultural beliefs as well impact yeah. um, men's mental health and the ability to get the treatment that they need. Because the stigma not only prevents men from speaking to their loved ones about mental illness, so they're, they're in pain by themselves, but yeah. it prevents them from addressing it and getting, getting the help that they need. Yeah, and there's such a huge societal like lack of education and understanding of mental, of mental illness. The term is used loosely in conversation. Diagnoses are thrown around without even having a proper diagnosis. So um, I, I can t- understand how it might, might seem like an uphill battle, but there are professionals out there who genuinely love this area and want to help. But, you know, there are online services that as a phone call away where you can call to start that conversation. Even if you're immediate healthcare provider, you may be, not comfortable talking to them, but there are resources. So for men who are suffering, and there's at least one or one at fifty percent of you have or will at some point, please reach out. Uh-huh. And there is something called toxic masculinity, and and oh, yes. men 
who experience this toxic masculinity are at higher risk for death by suicide. It increases loneliness. It increases risky behavior and increases substance and alcohol use. Recently, I had a patient in my clinical practice and, you know, it was a person who had, who's unable to keep a job, unable to uh, stay in a relationship um, and, you know, just, just difficulties in mid thirties kind of thing. And, you know, I, this had very lofty ideas and grandiose ideas, but not, you know, just sort of this, I, these just was talking like a motor mouth, you know, just nonstop and, and, you know, was collecting unemployment, which is, you know, it's a great benefit, but you know what? I always believe in work if you can. And this is a young man. And I said, you know, uh, I would suggest you get a physical labor job, a job for one year that where you work, you know, physical labor is so important or physical exercise is so important, but it's important for men's self-esteem, you know, to have a job, especially at that age. And it's so good for young men in particular to be physical and to, that will help them sleep well. But then I also mentioned, you know, no substances, no alcohol, no smoking pot. The impact on your brain cannot be overstated for some people it can really negatively impact their brain health and ultimately mm-hmm. their mental health. Uh, Dr. Tommy Mitchell is my guest. She is a medical doctor. We are talking about the top five health concerns for men. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. I do have somebody who's texted in. This is Kevin okay. in Ontario. And uh, Kevin said, COVID and the vaccine are kicking the crap out of our hearts now, big time, and diabetes and brain damage. Talking about heart disease, the number one health concern for men. What are your thoughts on COVID and the vaccine kicking the crap out of our hearts and diabetes and brain damage? Okay. Um, (laughs) I think in any vaccine, there are risks, and the risks are very, 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 very tiny, like less than 1% for most things. And when you have millions of people who get a vaccine all at the same time, you're going to note you're going to see things. So to say any vaccines without risk would be foolish. And I'm not going to say that, but I think, but I, but I do want to say we don't, we didn't have any vaccine injury units in hospitals during the pandemic. We had a lot of COVID units, but we didn't have any vaccine units. I just want to make that, make that slight point. Yeah. Yeah. Heart disease (laughs) has been kicking our butt for a very long time, longer than the pandemic, longer than we, like that's been the number one killer for, forever so why is it um, important for men to care about their hearts and their and heart disease and cardiometabolic disease and and high blood pressure on and on yeah well our body by the time if we wait till our body starts screaming at us it's often late so our body whispers at us little little hints of maybe you should check your blood pressure you know, this is a little high. Maybe your waistline's getting a little bit too big, or maybe you're not eating properly. Maybe you're more fatigued than normal. Like, just those things add up cumulative from decades of living before, you know, men or in, or in the 50s or 60s typically have an event, cardiovascular event. It matters. Your heart is essential. It's like your engine of your car. It matters. And the numbers don't lie. We know that heart disease the is the leading cause lie. of death for men. And it's yeah. important to understand your risk factors for heart disease. And yeah. 
there are a number of medical conditions and lifestyle factors that do contribute to a higher risk for heart disease. What are some of those, Dr. Mitchell? Yeah, great question. Um, so high blood pressure, age. Okay, let's talk about age is number one, non-modifiable. Um, diabetes, if you're not physically active, excessive smoking, unhealthy diet, like the, you know, the quick fast food kind of diet. If you're physically inactive, you know, alcohol use, we had dry January, right, in January. So that's a risk factor. So smoking, stress is a risk factor. And stress can cause inflammation, which can cause a myriad of diseases and illnesses. So those are a few of the risk factors for heart Uh disease. Somebody else texted in and said, and I thought this was interesting, minus the gym, but um, every open bar, gym, and restaurant is a kick in the face to healthcare. I agree that every open bar and restaurant may be a kick in the face to healthcare. We know that they butter the lettuce in the restaurants. That's why it tastes so great. Um, but, you know, eating out and the fast food and the fast paced lifestyle and the shame and the stigma associated with getting help for mental health issues and, you know, which is so important. You know, we're all going to have stress, but we have to learn yeah. how to manage the stress. Exactly. And, and today we have exactly. lots of virtual options. But, you know, there are some things in our society that are, you know, contradictory to good health and, and healthy living. Definitely. Definitely. Even when we build our neighborhoods, we used to have lots of parks and walkways in many neighborhoods. Now it's everyone gets in their car, into their driveway, into their garage, and away they go. Um our society is by definition obesogenic. It's just the way things are, but we have to do our best to fight against those risk factors that are, we can actually change. Age is one we cannot and, change. And I'm not saying it's not, it, it's not hard. It's so hard, especially oh, for so yeah. many people. Oh. It's very, very challenging, but I it, wish we had more time to talk, Dr. Mitchell. Unfortunately, I know, I know. Yeah. we are at the end. We're going to have to cover some of those um, health issues for men in upcoming segments as well. We'll cover testosterone and and fertility and and diabetes. That's something else. But thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Anyway, I do most of my clinical work in sexual dysfunction, uh, largely the sexless marriage. You'd be surprised at how many couples present with that as the number one issue in the relationship, but when you dig beneath the sheets, when you just take off the comforter, you find lots of other issues that are going on. And so that's where my nursing background comes in handy because I can help them not just with the relationship issues, but with some of the medical causes that relate to the sexual dysfunction. We we often think that all men want is sex and there, there might be some men in your life that that is all they want, um, but that's not the case for all males. We, we typically associate low sexual desire or sexual dysfunction. If you even think about sexual dysfunction, if you even think that there can be issues along the sexual response cycle for men or for women, you often associate them with more so with women, especially low sexual desire, but sexual dysfunction occurs in males almost equally as much. Not quite, but they have a lot more issues that can occur as well. 
It can affect men of all ages, but it's especially common in older men. And the most common problems that are related to sexual dysfunction are ejaculation disorder, so premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, extremely common, and then low sexual desire. Please understand and know there is no shame in seeking treatment for these issues, for these concerns. And they can often be corrected by treating the underlying cause. So people are often surprised. And when they come to my clinical practice or see me virtually, which I'm seeing a lot of patients these days virtually, but they're, you know, I'm in a sexless marriage and help me to have sex in my marriage by tomorrow. (laughs) Like, okay, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I am not a miracle worker. And it, it actually takes a lot of work on the part of the couple. I educate basically and inform. And it's really up to the couple to do their homework and and be committed and really be on the same page or in the same bed, essentially, which is also very important. I had a conversation this week with Jill Bennett from CKNW, and we talked about um, separate bedrooms and this new trend in Japan, um, how people are living apart. They're married, but they're actually living in different residences. I, I was telling her about um, a friend of mine who was the first one to introduce me to two master bedrooms in their newly built house. <laughs> anyway, is that a trend in Canada? But it's important to be intimate and to be in the same bed and also to have, not to have a television in your room and not to bring all the electronics in your room. All of these things matter, but there's some other things that matter as well. But first I wanted to, to define for you what is sexual dysfunction is in men. It's any physical or psychological problem that prevents you or your partner from getting sexual satisfaction. And male sexual dysfunction is a common health problem. As I said, it affects men of all ages, but more closely associated with increasing age or advancing age. But treatment can help you from suffering. You do not need to live this way. You do not need to suffer. I had a couple in my clinical practice who were in a sexless marriage, but then under Lying that, he also had erectile dysfunction issues. He had self-esteem issues. He had self-confidence issues. And, And so, you know, he was in a relationship with a very strong personality and, you know, he just could never win. But he was kowtowing to this particular person and and the respect was gone. And so it can become very complex and it can be multifactorial, but it is important to seek the help that you need. The main types of male sexual dysfunction are erectile dysfunction, that's the inability to attain and or maintain an erection adequate for penetrative sex. Premature ejaculation, well, I'll come too soon, reaching orgasm too quickly. Super excited. Um, and, you know, this is a big issue and can cause decreased sexual satisfaction in relationships. You can have delayed or inhibited ejaculation, and that's reaching orgasm too slowly or not reaching orgasm at all. And then there is low sexual desire or low libido, and that is reduced interest in sex. And, you know, for women, you know, for when men have uh, are in a relationship with a female partner or with the same or, or with another male partner as well, um, but in particular when they're in a relationship with women, and the woman doesn't want to have sex, you know, they can go to the locker room, they can find lots of buddies and friends who are, have the same plight. You know, it's pretty common. Women are tired. That's the number one reason for low sexual desire. And they don't 
they they do feel loneliness and they do feel um you know badly about it it can affect their mood and it can increase their blood pressure so there's lots of effects but it's kind of a social accept socially accepted kind of thing you know my partner or my wife doesn't want to have sex with me again you know got turned down again kind of a thing but when a woman is turned down by a man because a man has low sexual desire she internalizes that she feels terrible about herself. What's wrong with me? I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not popular enough, whatever it is. It's a very different response to that because the cultural norm is that in North America anyway, maybe around the world, everywhere, maybe even on Mars, <laughs> if there's life there. Um, but the cultural, the accepted cultural norm is that all men want is sex, but that is definitely not the case. And so there are a number of reasons for low sexual desire in men. And although it affects about 40%, close to 40%, not quite, 37.8% of women, it affects about 20% of men. And that might surprise you. But I've, I've seen it, and men are surprised at this as well. But there's a number of reasons for overall sexual dysfunction, and that would include low sexual desire as well. And that has to do with testosterone levels. Very important. It's an important conversation that you need to have with your doctor. Also, prescription medications like antidepressants and high blood pressure medications, they are also contributing factors to low sexual desire and other sexual dysfunctions, or they can be. And so, you know, but antidepressants can help with premature ejaculation. But, you know, here's the thing. We can prevent depression. We can prevent high blood pressure. These are modifiable illnesses, diseases. And, you know, but people just want the quick fix. They just want the pill for the high blood pressure. They don't realize that there are so many things that you can do. We talked about a lot of it on this program tonight from nutrition to exercise to sleeping properly, cutting out alcohol, all of these things can help with your blood pressure. It's always best to treat things naturally, if you will. And by, by naturally, I mean with those things that, um, you know, are lifestyle behaviors and changes. I don't mean herbs. I don't mean, you know, don't let anybody sell you some supplement. It's not going to work. Um, there's a 30% placebo effect, but you hear all these ads and, you know, see all this stuff on Instagram and, and social media that, you know, this is going to help this and make you, you know, heart health tablets, not going to work. What does work or what is your best chance? And it's, and if you have to take medication, it doesn't mean you stop exercising or stop eating healthily. Blood vessel disorders like atherosclerosis, which you probably know as hardening of the arteries, can also contribute to lack of hardening of your penis. So it can lead to erectile dysfunction. And so it's very important. You may have done a lot of damage by now, but you can certainly reverse some of that or prevent further progression. High blood pressure. I, I cannot state this enough. It is so important that you get your blood pressure within a normal range, 120 over 80, work with your doctor with that, work with a nutritionist, work with, just get out in there and get walking. That is extremely helpful. We have so many patients who have uh, diabetes, diabetes type 2, and you can have nerve damage from diabetes as well. And so that can also contribute to sexual dysfunction in males. And smoking, alcoholism, 
and drug abuse, all contributing factors to sexual dysfunction as well. It can lead to low sexual desire. It can also turn somebody else off to you. And so it, you may not have low sexual desire, but you may have sexual dysfunction. So you may have erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation, or you may have um, inhibited ejaculation. But, you know, here you are. I mean, it's just not a pretty sight, smoking, drinking, using substances to treat your mental health issues. Very important to live just a clean, sober life that where you deal with whatever it is that, or try to seek the treatment if you can. And even sometimes when we share our stories, just tell the story to one person, you release the pain. It, we really have to destigmatize mental illness in this country. There are also some psychological contrib contributing factors to sexual dysfunction. And so I see this a lot in my clinical practice, and it doesn't surprise me anymore. It used to, but concern about sexual performance. So men are very, very concerned about it, which may lead them to start drinking, thinking that that will help to help them to relax. And, you know, and it, and it can in moderation. But there, it's not going to take care of the sexual performance. And I've mentioned many times on the program before, confidence is sexy. And so if you have issues around your sexual performance, erectile dysfunction, get the treatment, speak to your doctor about it, start somewhere. If you're listening tonight, you're starting here. There also can be marital or relationship problems that quite frankly, people don't even know about. <laughs> okay. And you, you're in the relationship, but I hear that so often in my clinical practice as well, that they didn't even know that their partner felt a certain way because they're not comfortable talking about it. The partner doesn't want to hurt the other partner or the, they're afraid to speak up or there's anger issues or one partner gets angry or is controlling or is financially controlling or um, there's just so many issues that can go on in relationships. And when they go unchecked, when you're not getting the help that you need, it can lead to sexual dysfunction. The other thing which we talked about earlier tonight in the program, if you were listening, is depression and feelings of guilt. Those can also contribute to sexual dysfunction and, and low sexual desire in particular. Fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in men and women. And it's if you don't treat your depression or, or and, and often sometimes if you do treat the depression, antidepressants can even make, make you feel better, but they can actually make your libido lower or even worse. Uh, the other thing that we fail to address at times is the effects of past sexual trauma. There's so much stigma, so much shame associated with that. It's a very difficult one to treat. There's oftentimes lifelong anxiety that is associated with a past sexual trauma, and it can be triggered by intimate relationships. And so once again, something to uh, get treatment. And men in particular who have had the horrific and criminal and awful experience of uh, sexual trauma, sexual abuse. We don't think of boys and men being sexually abused unless it come every now and again, a story comes out in the media, but this occurs. And there are so many men that have emailed me over the years, sharing their story about sexual abuse as a child or an adolescent or, or even as a, a grown man. And so, you know, it's very important to get the treatment for that understand that there is treatment available and there's, you know, no shame in it. It's not something that you did as an innocent child. You had no, yeah, absolutely no responsibility for that. And it is a crime. 
and and also work-related stress and anxiety. And I think after the pandemic, lots of people are working from home. So now we're all in our homes. The kids are underfoot. They were going to homeschool. You know, people are going back into the office. It's another transition. You know, there there can be certain amounts of stress and anxiety associated with all of that. Again, it's expected. This is the norm. It, it's okay. And there's other people that are experiencing this as well. And I often hear that in my clinical practice where people will say, have you ever heard this before? And, you know, the issues are so common. It's just about every single patient that I may have seen that day. And so my point is, is that men and women can experience sexual dysfunction. And there are certainly are treatments. Um, and, you know, whether it's stress or depression or sexual repression or low self-confidence or lack of communication or unresolved conflicts with your partner, there are uh, treatments for this. And, you know, it's it, the, you know, certain medications can affect ejaculation, certain medications can impact um, low sexual desire. And, and so it is very important to talk about these issues. Um, you know, another one that I think we're going to have to go to break, certainly, but we'll talk about it in an upcoming segment is retrograde ejaculation. It's most common in males with diabetes who suffer with diabetes-related nerve damage. And problems with the nerves in the bladder and the bladder neck force the ejaculate to flow backwards, so it's going in the wrong direction. And other men, retrograde ejaculation may be a side effect of some medications or happen after operation, for example, after prostate sur- surgery. So, talk to your doctor about these. There are certainly um, treatments. You need to have the proper diagnosis and that may involve blood tests or blood pressure checks or rectal exams to check your prostate, examination of your penis and testicles or, um, you know, also post-op, post-prostatectomy. But you need to talk to your doctor about the symptoms and your medical and sexual history. And those questions might seem very personable, I mean, personal, sorry, but you know, it's, please don't be embarrassed. Your doctor is okay to talk about this. Sometimes the doctor feels that you don't want to talk about this. That's another whole issue as well. The the patient and doctor talking about these sensitive subjects. There's lots of treatments from medications that to improve sexual function to hormone therapy, psychological therapy, education, mechanical aids like vacuum devices and penile implants that can help men with erectile dysfunction. You can a psychological counselor can help you address feelings of anxiety, depression, fear, or guilt because all of that can affect your sexual function. Sexual dysfunction can be prevented and we need to actually look ahead and, you know, focus on that. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.